0: This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. Welcome to episode 41. My guest is Elizabeth Hess. She's a writer who began her career as an arts journalist at The Village Voice in the 1980s, and she wrote about the art scene for more than 15 years in publications like The New York Observer, Art in America, Art News, The Washington Post, and Art Forum. She also ended up writing essays that were included in anthologies. But during the 1990s, Elizabeth began writing investigative articles on animals for The Village Voice, New York Magazine, and The Observer. She wrote an exposé on New York City's animal control program in New York Magazine, and then she got a Genesis Award from the Humane Society of the United States in 1998. So she kept writing about animals, and her articles appeared in the Daily Beast, the London Daily Telegraph, Our Town, and The Bark, among other publications. And then she's written books as well. She's the author of Nim Chimpsky, The Chimp Who Would Be Human, which was published by Bantam in 2008. There was a documentary film made based on the book Project Nim, and it was released in 2011. She's also the author of Lost and Found, Dogs, Cats, and Everyday Heroes at a Country Animal Shelter. It was based on five years of volunteering at the Columbia Green Humane Society. And she also wrote with Barbara Ehrenreich and Gloria Jacobs the book Remaking Love, the Feminization of Sex. So I'm delighted to have Elizabeth on to talk about the process of writing for numerous genres, moving from journalism into books, which seems to happen um, among our guests, and also to talk about the process of writing a biography of an animal, which is kind of an amazing thing to do. So I'm sure you'll really enjoy hearing from Elizabeth today. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for being on the show. Ah, my pleasure. So you've had an amazing career in terms of crossing genres, methods of writing, and it began back at the at the Village Voice, which is kind of an amazing place to get started. Is that really where it started, or is that just where you first started writing um, and publishing?
1: It's, it's certainly where I first started writing regularly, and um, I, I do feel I was very charmed to kind of cut my teeth at The Voice because it's a place where Writers were encouraged to say whatever they wanted and to say it as loud as they possibly could say it. And um, I had a lot of freedom to um, go off and and write features on different things happening around the country. And I was very lucky, I had a a wonderful editor who interpreted the arts very broadly and um, had me on a very long leash. So it was a lot of fun.
0: So you started covering the art scene initially. So what pulled yes. you to the art scene, but then later you went kind of into investigating situations with animals. So those are really different topics. So how did you get into the first and then evolve to the other?
1: You know, it's a question I'm asked a lot, and I'm not sure what the answer is. But practically speaking, I wrote an article for The Voice. I, I discovered that New York City had an animal ambulance. And I thought might be interesting to ride around for a week on the animal ambulance and see you know what it was like and what kind of animals were being picked up and um it i ended up writing a kind of scathing investigative piece on the municipal animal control program in new york city and it was you know one of these eye-opener life-changing pieces and I was immediately offered a book contract to expand it. So I decided to take a year off from art writing and um, I I moved the shelter system that I was writing about to a a smaller and more rural shelter in upstate New York and um, wrote this book called Lost and Found. And I realized that animals, I mean, you can't write about animals without writing about people. And it's all connected somehow. And somehow my training as an art critic had really prepared me to look at things closely and carefully. And very few people were writing uh, much journalism about animals at that time. And I was flooded with requests to write this and to write that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical from art. And I sort of never went back. I, you know, the more you learn, the more interesting it became for me. And um, I had a lot to learn. And that was very exciting. Art reviewing is also a kind of, you know, dead end. And, you know, I was a very political critic. I, I wrote a lot about women artists. And I wrote a lot about artists of color and political movements. And I followed the Robert Mapplethorpe show across America and wrote about the response to it. And covered the censorship trial, and I I didn't want to just go back to straight reviewing because um, reporting I found much more exciting. So reporting on animals and, and being a journalist in this whole new area kind of opened things up for me.
0: That's amazing. I mean, as you're talking, I have all this, like, I get all excited, and there's so much energy behind what's happening. I mean, I wonder if you're having any flashbacks at the moment in our current our current world—we don't have to go that far into that one, but um, <laughs> but I'm sure that you're you have feelings about that now too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. Um, I marched along with everybody else. Yep. And uh, the numbers are on our side, and um, I think we're all going to be doing part-time political work for the next <laughs> several years. Again. And in some ways, that's exciting, and in some ways, that's depressing, but it's what we're all facing. And certainly, uh, with Trump's rollback, um, threatening, you know, a simple thing like the Endangered Species Act, you know, there are huge losses at stake here. So I'm certainly going to be very involved in all of that.
0: Definitely. Well, yeah. one thing that you said about, about writing all of the investigative pieces, and then going into Lost and Found, that spending that time on the animal ambulance, that it was life-changing. How was it it life-changing for you? Well, it was such a horrifying
1: experience, is the truth. The callousness with which people discard animals and the callousness with which the Municipal Animal Control Program scooped them up and got rid of them. There was no one to blame but everyone, and the whole system was so corrupt and badly run that um, untangling it. I started. I actually started writing about the Municipal Animal Control Program for several years. There was a lot to say about it, and New York City um, at that time, uh, this was uh, in the 90s, still pretty bad but it's getting better um had had the one of the worst um animal control programs of any large city in the country ironically new york and la had the worst shelter systems being you know two of the wealthiest cities so there was a lot to write about and there was a lot to explain to the public um because the public doesn't really understand that you know, you drop your animal off at uh, at a shelter, and it it's it's killed the next day, if not that afternoon. And this animal ambulance that I was riding around and, you know, we picked up a lot of dead a dead possum, a dead raccoon, a rottweiler that had been chained outside in a backyard guarding some shops for two years, starved to death, Of uh, this, uh, that. The stories went on and on. I went to neighborhoods I, I'm from New York City. I went to neighborhoods in New York City I had never been before. And by the time, you know, at the end of the day when we pull back into the facility all the animals we had collected would virtually be dead Mm. I mean the ambulance was was in essence a hearse and that's not always the way it was but a lot of the time the the animals that were coming in that way to the system would rarely make it out again so there you know it's changed again it's the system has changed a lot um there's been a lot of Money poured into it at this point, or more money, but um, it's still run by the Department of Health in New York, and it's still a very political system. And the dogs and the cats don't don't do very well. So I got interested in companion animals, and I wrote about companion animals for quite some time for for the Voice, for New York Magazine, for the New York Observer, and and this sort of segues into Chimpsky because mm-hmm. I decided that I wanted to write a biography of one animal. And I had no idea. I didn't want it to be a dog or a cat because I sort of, I don't know, somehow I thought that was too easy. <laughs> right. I wanted a species. And I wanted an animal that was significant in many different arenas and an animal that had left a strong impact on people. And around the time I was kind of searching, I read an obituary for Chimpsky. I think it was in the in the Washington Post, as I recall.
0: Mm.
1: And it struck me very hard. And I thought, this is amazing. This is the first animal who's ever gotten such a serious obituary. And his story was fascinating. And I found that his story had been entirely swept under the rug. He had been an embarrassment to everyone for one reason or another. And that intrigued me. And it was a science story. It was an animal story. It was a human-animal interaction story. It had all of the issues that that I found fascinating. So I sort of became obsessed with hunting down his story. And that's how the book began.
0: And so he died in 2002, correct? Yes. And then the book comes out in 2008. So that's a long, <laughs> yes. time, it was a long time of digging and, and researching, which I think happens a lot with a biography. How was it to go into this and then to start, because this is something that we haven't approached before on the show, which is writing nonfiction that involves really interviewing other people as a part of your project. So... How was it to get in touch with people about something where, as you say, there were pretty serious emotional and other kinds of feelings about what happened with Nim? Well,
1: I had to make sure, I had to figure out who the sort of principal characters were in Nim's life. I mean, the first problem when you're writing about an animal, of course, is that there's, there's no, there's very little paper trail and since animals don't speak, and video I mean you know what what are your your sources here what resources do you have I mean all I had were people's stories and then how if somebody told me a story about Nim how was I going to make sure that story was true because there were so many stories so many myths so many you know so so many confusions and so many arguments over Nim was raised in a human family taken from his biological mother at birth and taught american sign language and some people felt he was an extremely fluid signer and some people felt he was a mimic and what did nim really understand and who who could who could answer that question was a complicated question in and of itself so i found that i had to every story that i wanted to include in this book I had to get two or three different perspectives on that story and then determine what I thought the truth was. So it was very complicated, and the documentation on Nim's life was very poor. The only thing they were obsessed with documenting were the number of signs. This was, you know, for, for your listeners who don't know, um, this was an experiment in, at Columbia University in the mid-'70s, and it, it came out of an argument between Noam Chomsky and B.F. Skinner about whether or not the English language was it was exclusive to human beings. And Skinner, of course, argued that it was not, that you could even teach a chimpanzee language. And Chomsky argued that only humans had the ability to learn language. And the way Chomsky defines language, and the way Skinner defines language is all very complicated. Um, and, and in the end, this argument was never settled. And um, Herb Terrace, the scientist who was conducting the experiment, which was called Project NIM, was B.F. Skinner's protege. So he had sort of an axe grinding to begin with, with Noam Chomsky, hence the chimp's name, Nim Chomsky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, you know, when it comes to science, failures are equally as interesting as successes. And this was a sort of fascinating failure on on so many different levels. Nim did learn um, 150 signs. Uh, He could communicate with people. You know, mostly what he was communicating was, you know, give me a cigarette or I want a Coke. (laughs) But a lot of times that ability saved his life on a number of different occasions. Nim was a survivor and he was very savvy about human beings and he did a lot better in the end. He ended up in a sanctuary in Texas than many of the chimpanzees in his generation did who were all used in hepatitis studies and toxicity studies and studies that would be illegal today to use chimpanzees for. You can't do research on chimps anymore.
0: How much do you think that is because of the stories that people did learn about these chimps and how they experienced. I mean, I think of the film project X, which was pretty foundational for me watching it as a young person.
1: Oh, I, you know, I, I saw a, a part of that film recently, and I, I kind of went crazy over that little chimp. Yeah. Um, wondering who that chimp was and what happened to him.
0: Oh, Virgil. Um, I still remember his name. What was his name? Virgil.
1: Virgil. Virgil could probably find out but you you're not going to see chimpanzees used in films anymore there's a big move to save them from these horrendous roadside circuses you know they suffer terribly in cages all alone they're extremely social animals and um of course it's the government won't fund uh any any research on using chimps anymore And um, so now they're using, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of monkeys and, of course, rodents, but at least they're not using the chimps and they're not breeding them anymore specifically for research, at least not in this country in government in government labs. So that's really a good thing. And that came out of a generation of activists and people who were taking care of chimps that were I mean, Nim was the, Nim's both Nim's mother and Nim's father biological mother and father were wild caught in Africa. Nim was the first generation of captive bor- born chimpanzees in America. It was very hard to breed chimps. I mean the scientists didn't know how to do it and there was one guy in Oklahoma who figured out you have to keep the chimps happy in order for them to breed. I mean it became once it became illegal to um, bring them over from Africa, and when they did bring them over from Africa, shoot the mother, peel the baby off, ship it off to Africa, you know, it was likely that if the baby chimp wasn't dead by the time it arrived, it it died soon after, because these scientists didn't realize that chimps were so much like human babies, that if they weren't cuddled and caught and held and fed and kept warm, they died, and if they didn't have, you know, a lot of love and affection, they they literally died, so breeding them here made sense. And Nim was born in this facility in Oklahoma, which was the first place where um, they sort of the, the chimps had enough freedom to pick their own mates and breed at will. And it was the most successful breeding facility in the U.S. at one point in the 70s. And that's where um, Nim spent a lot of time. after he was returned after the language study.
0: Yeah, there's the I mean, there's sort of the heartbreaking bit in the beginning of the book where you talk about when he was born and his mother kind of sitting and facing away from everyone holding him because she's aware that she's not going to get to keep him.
1: Yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking stuff. Absolutely.
0: So then he goes and is placed with a human family. And how was it kind of connecting with them? Like, Because it seemed like there was a team of people who were like, yes, I have so much to say about this, and people who were like, no, I don't want to talk about this at all. So how did you start to reach out to them and have conversations with all the people involved?
1: Well, the first person who was really key for me was Stephanie LaFarge. And she um, she's a fascinating person. I, she's a psychologist, and I met her, She's still working uh, for the ASPCA, and at the, at the time when I met her, she was running a program at the ASPCA for people who had been convicted, a group therapy program for people who had been convicted of animal cruelty in the New York City court system, and I called her up and said, hey, can I sit in on these therapy sessions? And she's a sort of extraordinary and courageous person, and she said, sure. Sure. So I went and I wrote an article about her and the work she was doing, which was fascinating. And, of course, at some point I said, how did you become, you know, a shrink working for the ASPCA? And she said, well, it all started with this little chimpanzee that I mothered named Nim Chimsky. And, you know, the pieces were all sort of starting to fall together. And she, she agreed to talk to me right away. She hadn't really talked at all much about the case, and about the chimp, and she had recently been to see him, right, you know, uh, several months before he died, and Nim's effect on her family had been very kind of earth-shattering, but she felt she was ready to talk about it, and she was willing to talk about it, and because she was a psychologist, she had been Herb Terrace's student, which is how she got the opportunity to take Nim into her home, and slowly she introduced me to her kids. Some of them wanted to talk about it, others didn't. But most of them were actually grateful that I was looking into it, because especially um, Jenny, um, Stephanie's youngest daughter, who was very close to Nim and really thought of Nim as her brother. She was a high school student when Nim came uh, to live with them going to a sort of experimental school in New York City called Calhoun, and the school allowed her to stay home and essentially become part of the quote experiment, rather than attend classes. So she was very, very involved, and she loved Nim, and Nim loved Jenny, and, um, you know, I think a day doesn't go by that that she still doesn't think about him. And she's a landscape designer, and one of the things that she did was she designed um, the – she was one of the designers on the gorilla enclosure at the Bronx Zoo, and I think that sort of says – describes the impact that Nim had on her life but some people you know the the New York piece of it Herb Terrace agreed to cooperate with the book which was very important to me because I really needed to understand what he thought he was doing and The Oklahoma, you know, the New Yorkers, one by one, I I found them, I interviewed them. I interviewed them over a couple of years. People's stories changed, they developed, they dug out letters, uh, videos, but it, it took a long time. And then eventually, after Nim's first four years, he was returned to Oklahoma because terrorists killed the study very dramatically and very suddenly. So Nim went from being a coddled, chimp in a human family. He was thrown back into a cement cage in a primate lab. And the people in Oklahoma did not know the people in New York. There had been, you know, very little communication back and forth. And I was kind of the liaison. I was kind of this, this NIM library. So people started getting in touch with each other through me. And that, of course, created all kinds of, of fascinating dialogues and people started remembering things. And it was the process was was really interesting.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And the other thing that is coming up as I'm talking to you about the story and the nature of the story is that I think anyone listening to you talk about the story and how this happened cannot help but think of how this must have inspired fictional accounts like Karen Joy Fowler's We're All Completely Beside Ourselves. I haven't spoken to her obviously but I am curious about how you feel about seeing this spun out into fiction because the the Jenny, you know, Nim relationship of course feels so close to that book. Yeah,
1: I, you can imagine I picked up that novel to read it and and um <laughs> almost fainted when I realized where her material had come from. You know, it's it's you put this stuff out into the world, and and uh, you never know where it's going to turn up. I I have to say I would have been happier had she acknowledged the book somewhere in there um, as a source for her, but uh, she chose not to. Yeah, I mean I did a lot of research and um, some of it was sort of verbatim in that novel. It's appeared other places, too. People have done plays based on it. Of course, there was a film, and, you know, the, James Marsh did a film, but, and he legally optioned the book, and it, it's had a dramatic impact. There's no, no question about that. In the beginning, I was, like, incredibly possessive, of Nim, you know, to hear other people talking about him to, to, to see, you know, films are so much more powerful than books. And suddenly Nim Chimsky belonged to this filmmaker, James Marsh, and he was no longer mine. And, um, I was tremendously resentful and jealous of that for a while. Then I kind of got over myself, (laughs) but, you know, you can't help, but as a writer, you can't help, but fall, in love with your subject um, sometimes you hate your subject, sometimes you love your subject but there's so it's such an emotional especially perhaps with animals I don't know I think other biographers I'm I'm sure feel the same about their human subjects but this this book was a pretty straightforward biography. I, I wanted people to know that animals have lives that have beginnings, middles and ends and create all kinds of, Important, informative relationships in the same way that human beings do. So I had to realize that, you know, Herb Terrace wrote a book about Nim. I wrote a book about Nim. Um, it's coming up in fiction. Uh, Nim has a life of his own. I I don't know what's going to be next.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Something. Well, it's such a it's such an amazing story because I think you know, there's such a paradigm shift that's happened since the 70s when Nim was born. And as you said, the kinds of studies that were going on then that you would never even think of, you know, conceptualizing now. And in some ways, how much that work has changed our conception, I think probably far more people would feel like, of course, of course, they have a sense of communicating, of course, you can get language from it. And that debate between Noam Chomsky and Skinner might not happen in the same way now. So maybe yes. maybe that writing is what's pushed it forward.
1: Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, a study like this... Well, first of all, you know, you can't use animals this way anymore. But now, instead of trying to teach a, a human language to an animal now we're studying the the language of animals and because for the first time scientists are admitting the fact that animals have their own languages so we're trying to decode their languages there's been a lot of interesting stuff on prairie dogs for instance and there's a lot of interesting stuff with with chimps because chimps are so available to all to communication i mean they are amazing to communicate with and it's if you if you can establish a way to communicate with them, sort of like dogs, but much more complex. I mean, you know, I, I talk to my dogs and they know exactly what I'm saying and occasionally they do what I ask them to do. But with a chimp it's it's just much deeper and different. And I think I think there are very few people now who who don't believe who do, you know, I think we all now do believe that animals are sentient creatures, whether we're going to put one in a cage, whether we're going to eat one, whether we're going to, um, euthanize one. These are all things that we can no longer do without questioning it and thinking about it. And that's really a good thing. We've come a long way.
0: Let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Scrivener. I think you can see from Elizabeth's story just how easy it is to get overwhelmed by all the research material you have to gather for a big research project. Not just an article, but let alone an entire book with all of the historical documents, interviews, differing opinions, and details. The great thing about Scrivener is that right inside your project, you have templates to keep track of research like Elizabeth has done for this book. If you're interviewing people, if you're keeping notes, if you want to copy and paste things in, if you've got emails, all kinds of stuff, you don't have to have it dispersed throughout your entire computer. It can just be right inside of your Scrivener project. If you want to give Scrivener a try, you can check them out at literatureandlatte.com. And remember the code secret will get you 20% off the desktop software. Now let's get back to Elizabeth we we talked about the interviewing but there was this whole other part of research that went into this that i think is important to talk about in terms of getting over the the 6 years between when you found out about nim and got a book so let's talk about that and what else goes into the biography other than speaking to the people who knew nim
1: you know nim was in oklahoma and uh, William Lemon, who, who was his owner and a scientist, a very well known psych- psychologist at um, the University of Oklahoma, taught there for many years. So, all of his students, you know, I, I had to find out about this place. And I, you know, he, uh, Lemon was dead, and I searched and searched and found that his son, Peter Lemon, was still alive and that he had just sold, that the Institute for Primate Studies was this place that I interviewed a lot of students from the University of Oklahoma, and in particular, this guy named Bob Ingersoll, who had really latched on to Nim at the primate center and spent a lot of time with him and fallen in love with him. And he was a really interesting character. And I sat and I read um, all the PhD thesis studies in the library of the school, finding picking out the people who just mentioned Nim or chimps who were there at the time that Nim was there to find them and talk to them about Nim. But when I heard that the place was about to be sold and torn down, I had to see it. So I flew out there and drove out to the location, and the Chimp Lab was, you know, Peter Lemon still owned it. And he said, you know, go at it, you know, take a look, what do you want to see? And for me it was amazing, I had read so much about this place. I had so many different mixed feelings about this place and there were some terribly cruel experiments that went on and some terribly fascinating ones that went on. It was a really mixed bag and it was a huge place lots of acreage and lemon uh, grew all his own food for the chimps lots of different kinds of fruit trees he he really believed in giving them a really healthy diet and all of it was still there but the lab had been completely trashed so i sat there for uh several days and just went through dumpsters and the garbage in the lab that was still there and this is the way I found all of the chimp files from the whole history of the Institute for Primate Studies. And it was like a gold mine. Lemon's letters were there to other scientists. I found out that he was communicating with all kinds of scientists in all different kinds of fields that wanted to do research on chimps. I found these uh, bill of sales. He was selling chimps to rodeos. He was selling baby chimps to circuses. He was selling them to all kinds of different, different people. And he was conducting his own study by placing baby chimps in human homes all over Norman, Oklahoma. And the only thing you really had to do is you had to want one of these chimps and you had to keep a daily journal of what it was like. So I found these journals. The research was amazing and it was research that Lemon had never done anything with. But I had the history of where every chimp came from how long it stayed, and what, you know, these chimps just go from one experiment to the next. I mean, that's what it's all about, is selling them, making the money, turning turning them over. And indeed, even Nim, who had spent four years in New York, when he was back in Oklahoma, and in, after several months, uh, Lemon sold Nim to a hepatitis study in New York at a at NYU's research facility, which was which called LEMSIP it's now been closed. And there were a lot of language chimps at Oklahoma. And they all signed to each other, by the way, which was quite interesting. And a lot of people were very fascinated by that. And the um, older chimps taught the new baby chimps sign language. Chimps like sign language, as it turns out. They're extremely gestural in general. So uh, zoos now uh, that have You know, if you have it, there are very few chimps in zoos because they're such hard keepers. But zoos often have language programs for chimps just to keep them entertained and happy as an enrichment program. But, you know, the chimps were just sold off to the, and, and Lemon was having trouble keeping the place open for various reasons. So he was selling his chimps off to some really terrible facilities and some to New York. As you know, if you've read, if you've read the book, uh, Nim did not last very long at LEMSIP. There was a huge protest over his being there because uh, it, was, it was very well covered in the New York Times. There were ethical questions. There were ethical questions about taking a baby chimp at birth, trying to convince that chimp that he, he was a human being and trying to make him identify with humans and then throwing him in a cage like any other animal and doing and you know running hepatitis and liver biopsies and tests on that animal and the ethical questions were debated very hotly and there was a lot of pressure put on the board of NYU And Jane Goodall became involved, and Cleveland Amory uh, became involved, and eventually Nim was was released and sent back to Oklahoma once again. Luckily for him, Cleveland Amory, who um, was an animal rights advocate who started an organization called the Fund for Animals, a wonderful, wonderful guy, And his family was responsible for Angel Memorial in Boston. Um, It's a very wealthy Boston family. And he started this sanctuary in Texas called the Black Beauty Ranch. And Nim became the first primate there. And that's where he stayed for the rest of his life. Nim bought him from Lemon, I think, for $5,000 or something. It's the first animal that the fund ever purchased. But nobody wanted to leave Nim after this struggle to get him out of this hepatitis study. Nobody wanted him to be sold to a study that was going to be, you know, much worse and harmful. And there Nim fell in love for the first time with another chimpanzee who was a retired circus chimp named Sally. Oh,
0: that is the sweetest thing. And
1: she, she was the great love affair of his life. So that was a very nice thing for him. That's always good to have a love story. Yes, <laughs> yes. Nim would take Sally's hand, and Nim, Nim was, you know, total Houdini. He could break out of any cage, and he would somehow manage to pick the lock of his cage. And he would take Sally by the hand, and they would exit the cage, and they would walk to the nearest house, which was the um, sanctuary director's house. And the Nim would turn on the television open the fridge and eat everything. Go, they'd go into the closet and try on
0: shoes. I mean, they were like kids. That's amazing. It's good <laughs> yeah. after all that he went through that he gets to have that story. But the book itself, you know, you wonder, you know, how many how many creatures don't get that ending and um, how many stories there are out there. So what are you working on now? Oh. <sighs>
1: I'm I'm actually writing a book about pit bull culture. Mm. <laughs> it's um it's sort of hard to explain. It's going to be one of these books that takes years to write too. But it started, I guess it started with these two dogs that I brought home, that come from this very large dog fighting bust in Alabama. The case is sort of commonly called the 367 case because there were 367 dogs that survived this ordeal. And I got interested in, you know, every shelter across America is filled with pit bulls and nobody knows what to do with them and there's so many of them. And the people who are breeding these dogs endlessly are, a lot of them are dog fighters. And I got interested in dog fighting culture because it's pervasive. And it's in every city, rural and urban. And these dogs are wildly overbred. There's far too many of them. For every dog that will certainly go into the ring and fight, hundreds are bred who won't fight. And so our shelters are filled with all the losers. All the dogs that are not aggressive enough to uh, be worth training and fighting and whatever. But I got interested in this culture and and dogfighting started out as a sort of white working class culture in the South. And you know Michael Vick, who's sort of the the, the famous football quarterback who was busted for dogfighting, went to his first dogfight at age eight. And it's kind of a rite of passage. There are kids at these fights. It's a way of sort of sanctioning and Violence in the culture the dogfighting arena is a place where people sell drugs and guns and it's a kind of Oasis of of criminal activity the dogfight is is the spectacle and It's a pervasive culture and it's a pervasive, you know, I started to think about who these people were and Why is this culture so pervasive and why is it that we blame the dogs uh, for these people and why isn't this culture shrinking at this point in time? So it's, to me it's very connected to the fact that Trump just won an election in America and the fact that this sort of embracing of violence, this appreciation, you know, people pay a lot of money to watch these animals bleed to death. Who are these people? And it's, it's illegal, of course, but I started to question why it was happening, and I wanted to find out. So I needed to find out more about it. And these dogs have attracted the broadest range of people. I mean, it's absolutely amazing to me. So this book sort of focuses on that range, and it's not the happy adoption stories. That's not what this is about, but there are obviously there are a lot of them they're popular dogs in my neighborhood in the west village at this point in new york city but i'm sort of looking at the people who have them who shouldn't have them and what that culture itself is about and how embedded it is especially in the south and the midwest so that's what the book's about not not the happiest subject but i swear i'm going to make it readable
0: yeah well i <laughs> guess that's my that's my final <laughs> Question for you is you've really been diving into topics that are not easy topics. You know, even writing about art, there was, you know, an element of looking at feminism and and other aspects of it. How do you take care of yourself as a writer as you're looking at this incredibly difficult material?
1: Well, it, to me that's that's the great challenge. You know, I I once had a really smart editor say to me, "Happy babies, are happy, but they're not interesting to write about. Unhappy babies, babies that are kidnapped, babies that have this issue or that issue are fascinating to write about. And I think my agent would have been thrilled if I had wanted to write a happy dog book, but I guess I'm sort of interested in in grappling with the the, the so-called pit bull issue is is a nasty one. And I think I'm afraid to say that's what attracts me to it because uh, people are so misguided about these dogs, these wonderful dogs. And the culture that is spawning them is a complicated culture. And I think it's one that we don't know about. It's one that we've overlooked. And when the Trump people talk about these white uneducated guys, these are the guys I'm talking about too.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it sounds like in some ways the comfort in looking at something so difficult in all these cases is that you're speaking for someone who can't speak for themselves.
1: Yeah, that's true. Although, as I said, it's it's impossible to write about animals and not write about people too. Every book that I've done, the Nim book certainly is really about the people around Nim, and you know, Lost and Found, which was a book about all I did was I looked at this little shelter and I followed the people who were leaving with the dogs and I followed the people who you know were bringing them in and I sort of realized they were the same people <laughs> and it's really a, a a portrait of a community and I I I used the shelter as a lens and really the animals in, in some fundamental way are a lens uh, for me of which to, to view a very hidden sub- subculture. And that's the challenge for me is exposing this hidden subculture. And it's, you know, it's, it's so hidden yet it's all over the Internet. It's it's very public in a way, yet it's totally illegal. I mean, the contradictions of a subculture right now in 2017 and how you look at it, it's very different than it would have been 10 or 20 years ago. So, and that kind of fascinates me too. I mean, one of the reasons, for instance, dogfighting—it's so hard to catch these people—is you know where the fight is going to be is is only announced on the internet an hour before it happens. There, there are ways in which this culture has taken advantage of of the technology and taken advantage of everything that's going on in the world legally and technically and politically and it's really it, it, the dogfighting culture is one that's grown tremendously over the last few decades and it's very stratified and they're very wealthy you know it can cost you as much as a Broadway as a as a Broadway show to go to a dog fight, or it can be free on a street corner. It's a very complicated and stratified culture. And to me, it's really at the heart of this thing called cruelty to animals that is kind of in our DNA and we have to get rid of it somehow. So my books, you know, my books, I want only to change the world, that's all.
0: That's it. (laughs) you know <laughs> well you have to start somewhere and I, I personally yeah, think books yeah. are the best place to start
1: yeah I agree
0: well thank you so much for for sharing your experience and, and talking about all of this with us I know that there's a lot of people out there who are very galvanized at the moment to write about issues and, and wider material that um, can impact the world at large so I know everyone's going to get a lot out of what you've shared
1: thank you this was really a pleasure
0: Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams, Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.